morning incarnation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The pilot episode for the political drama The West Wing features one of the most memorable character introductions in television history. As the episode unfolds, there's this right-wing Christian group uh, that's in the White House advocating for moral reforms, and the Christian guy says, I'd like to discuss why we hear so much about the First Amendment coming out of this building, but no talk about the First Commandment. And then he goes on to say, the First Commandment says, honor thy father. To which a Jewish man, annoyed by the mistake, responds, no, it doesn't. And then adds, also incorrectly, honor thy father is the third commandment. <laughs> well, then what's the first commandment, the Christian asks. And at that very moment, President Josiah Bartlett walks in and says, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt worship no other God before me. And the mic drops and the argument ends. Throughout Western history, the Ten Commandments have held an almost unassailable prominence in the church, in the academy, and yes, even in the government as a starting place for moral discussion among human beings. But I wonder how many of us could list them in order. Perhaps we can recall the greatest commandment according to Jesus, comes from the Shema and not from the Ten Commandments. It's the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But among the Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue, literally the Decalogos, the Ten Words, uh, perhaps the most foundational does indeed seem to be the First Commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's because idolatry is at the root of so much of our sin problem, isn't it? For example, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet in Ephesians 5, 5, he makes a de direct link between covetousness and idolatry. To covet something is not simply to admire what someone else has and then just leave it at that. It's a kind of lust for an object or person that places it at the center of our hearts. It affects also our human relationships. A man can't spend his time secretly lusting, clicking through pornographic images without it affecting his outward relationships with other people. And of course, with God as well. So the first commandment is in some sense the foundation for the rest. This morning, as part of our Life of Moses series, we're going to do a deep dive into the Ten Commandments, but don't worry, it won't be in the form of a ten-point sermon. I want to submit that we need to do a series on the Ten Commandments sometime, because I left so much on the cutting room floor this morning, but I just want to touch on some of the major themes of the Decalogue, and in the end, discuss how they relate to Christians today. But before we get down to discussing individual commandments, I want to talk about some misconceptions we have about the Law of Moses. So some people view the law of Moses and, and really by extension the whole Old Testament as basically being a religion of works 
whereas the New, Test the New Testament is a religion of grace. But is that true? Does that really square with the biblical witness? Because if so, the Bible is a confusing book indeed. Because there's a world of difference between love that's based upon performance and love that's grounded in grace. A father or a mother who communicates to their child, if you make me proud, then I'll show you love, creates a fundamentally different relational dynamic, especially over time, than a parent who never withholds love, regardless. Likewise, by analogy, I think we could say a God who withholds love or who withholds salvation until he sees obedience is also setting up a very different relational dynamic than we find in the New Testament, right? Putting the law before the gospel creates servants, but it'll never produce sons. But is this not, we ask in our ignorance, is this not what the Ten Commandments are all about? We know the entire message of the New Testament is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But how about the Old Testament? Is the message the same, or do we see a different kind of relational dynamic, perhaps even a different kind of God? That's what the second century heretic Marcion taught, that the God of the Old Testament was fundamentally different from the God of the New, and that this difference was not merely a difference in emphasis or in degree of clarity, but a difference in kind. There's even a lingering hint of this viewpoint in some of the reformers, how they interpreted the Old Testament. They said that it was essentially a religion of works where the law always comes before grace. Indeed, they taught that the purpose of the law was to drive us to the gospel. And there's a measure of truth in this, that our failure to meet the demands of the law shows us our need for Christ, of course. It's also fair to say that a close reading of scriptures reveals a God of grace from first to last. For example, look with me at the introduction to the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. It's on page 61 of your pew Bibles. And the first thing we notice, even before uh, any of this can be referred to as the law of Moses, is that it's first and foremost the law of God. Verse 1 says that God spoke all these words. And that little phrase should put to rest any notion that God gave anything less than his full endorsement of what we call the law of Moses. The Decalogue, as well as the many laws that follow, are a revelation from God himself. And what does God reveal? What does he say? Before giving out any laws, God declares who he is and what he has accomplished. Verse 2 says, I am. Remember the burning bush that too many weeks ago? I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, God saved his children out of a dysfunctional house, out of the house of slavery. And this mighty act of salvation occurred before the Israelites had a chance to do anything. You see this? Much less learn even his, his own household rules. So God's law, even in the Old Testament, is predicated upon his saving deeds. Grace comes before works, even in the Old Testament. 
This is the pattern we find in Scripture. We might say it's not so much law gospel, but it's gospel law gospel. It's like a gospel sandwich with grace on both sides. And it's crucial that we get this order straight because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not the severity of his law. Nothing has led more people to repentance than to look upon the cross of Jesus Christ and to have it preached to their hearts. Indeed, the human heart is so wayward, so skittish, that we're actually unwilling to even look at the law, to truly examine our hearts according to God's righteous standards, unless we're first convinced, at least we have some sort of inkling that there's a loving God behind what's going to be revealed to us. I remember a time in my life shortly after Avila was born when I felt like I was coming up short in every major area of my life. I remember I had an argument with Carissa and then I went to the campus to do some campus ministry. I came home and Carissa was already asleep and Avila was already asleep and I was like, man, I'm a bad husband. I'm an unpresent father. I was just doing campus ministry and I wasn't even really listening to the students. I'm kind of walking around in a like sleep deprived fog. Can I get an amen from any parents? And I just remember thinking, Lord, what am I going to do? And I remember at that low moment in my life, the Lord reminded me by the Holy Spirit that he has invited me to come to him, not on the basis of my performance, but on the basis of his great love for me. I, I wouldn't even presume to come to God at this time, except that he bid me to come to him through the cross of Christ. Amen? The point is, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the new obedience and life transformation, it only comes as a grateful response to God's prior love, to God's prior salvation. It's never the other way around. The God of the Bible is not schizophrenic, operating in a rules alone type of way for thousands of years, and then a grace alone for several thousand more. So what's the difference? Because there is indeed a difference between the old covenant and the new. Well, that, my friends, is a sermon for another topic, <laughs> another time, excuse me. And I uh, would especially point you to our series on the book of Romans from a couple years ago. But for now, I just want to say what it's not. The difference is not that in the Old Testament, God expects obedience, and in the New Testament, God does not. And that's not the difference. Paul rejects that notion outright in our New Testament reading from this morning. Romans 6.15 says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, he answers. In fact, according to Galatians 3, Abraham was justified by faith, the great father of faith, and then his descendants were placed under the law, uh, including the receiving of forgiveness through the sacrificial system, as a kind of guardian until Christ came. In fact, it's best if we remember that the very giving of the law, this guardian that God put us under, is actually an act of love. Just as a loving parent sets and maintains boundaries for the good of the child, so the Ten Commandments are not busy work that the Creator God gives us to just be a nuisance but the trustworthy directives of a loving creator who knows us better than we know ourselves. The truth underlying the law of God sets us free 
to be truly human. True freedom is the result not of doing whatever we see fit in the moment, but of living according to our creator's design. Indeed, there seems to be a fundamental connection in the text here between, between being brought out of the house of slavery, verse 2, and the commandment to have no other gods before me, in verse 3. To turn back to other gods is to turn back to slavery. As C.S. Lewis points out, the trick of the devil is to say, assert yourself and you'll become more like God. But in obeying and asserting ourselves, we actually become his slaves. Modern man is obsessed with self-definition, are we not? We think that we are the ones who get to decide what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong, who we are and who we're not, whether or not it squares with reality at all. Imagine if we applied this principle to other areas of life. Imagine if you scrapped the owner's manual for your car and decided to fill it with sawdust instead of with gasoline. Or with toothpaste instead of with motor oil. Would anyone do such a thing and expect the car to run as the maker intended it? Of course not, because the car has to run in the world that actually exists with the laws of chemistry and the laws of physics, not in the world of our own imagining. Beloved, it's the same with the commands of our own maker. They represent a kind of user manual for the human person. To follow them is true freedom, true self-discovery. He's the potter. We are the clay. And that means we are who he says we are. And it's for this reason, this and not some kind of insecurity within the heart of God, that he warns us against idols that threaten and misshape us. Verse 5 says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here the image changes from dutiful parent to a jealous lover. Indeed, the Hebrew word for jealous can elicit connotations of infidelity and marriage. Robert Alter warns that like a jealous spouse, God does not tolerate rivals in the hearts of his people. And just as unfaithfulness can be ruinous, not only for a marriage, but for the whole family system, so infidelity toward Yahweh can impact things to the third and to the fourth generation. Although it's worth noting that between the polarities of judgment and love, there's an altogether asymmetrical orientation with the heart of God toward steadfast love to the thousands of generations. Indeed, as we see in Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13. There's so much foundational theology in the opening verses of Exodus 20 about the nature of salvation and especially about God himself. God is the sovereign king whose authority underwrites this covenantal pact that we see in the form of the Ten Commandments. All of this is actually in accordance with ancient Near East custom. But unlike the Canaanite religions, where there's a different deity for each realm of the cosmos, in heaven above and the earth beneath and the water under the earth, see verse 4, here we find the revolutionary Jewish idea of monotheism. 
a single God who has revealed himself in a singular way as being the king over the entire cosmos. And we find echoes of this notion again in the Great Commission where Jesus, before sending out the apostles, makes sure to let them know all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. See, it's on the basis of his authority that we go, and it's on the basis of God our King that we obey the Ten Commandments. So now, having laid the groundwork for the Decalogue, for the new charter and constitution of the redeemed people of God, let's dive a bit deeper into the commandments themselves. It's important that we read the commandments carefully, otherwise we'll miss hidden gems. For example, the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, verse 8, also includes, did you see this, rest for bond servants, for immigrants and children, even for animals. Isn't that interesting? In other words, there's a sense of equality before the law of God, regardless of your station. The man and the woman of the house were not permitted to take their own rest on the backs of those who don't get rest. All are called to imitate their creator who rested on the seventh day, verse 11. And when the Decalogue is listed again in Deuteronomy 5, an additional rationale for the Sabbath is given, namely, that the Lord rescued them out of slavery. So why would they continue to treat themselves as if they were nothing more than beasts of burden? Thus, the Sabbath was a weekly reminder of their dignity before their creator And that their lives, and that our lives, are about more than what we produce. Besides reading the commandments carefully, we must also interpret them correctly, being mindful of the cultural and linguistic context. For example, the commandment to honor your father and your mother is less a matter of speaking about our parents respectfully, as important as that may be, and I commend that, um, but it's more so about our obligation to provide and look after them in their old age. According to our gospel reading in Mark 7, the Pharisees had developed sort of a pseudo-spiritual way of flouting that command. But Jesus rebukes them saying, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Guys, Jesus never rejected the commandments of Moses. What he rejected was placing these human traditions on an equal level with that. Look, I think that there's something beautiful and formational about crossing yourselves and bowing before the altar. Some of these traditions that we have, but ultimately I don't really care if you don't do that. What I care is that you don't commit adultery. What I care is that you don't steal. What I care is that you don't lie. Amen? These are the commandments of God, not the traditions of men. And Jesus honored them as such. It's interesting to note that in Hebrew, commandments 6 through 8 on murder, adultery, theft, they're only two words and three syllables each. The Hebrew word ratzah is rightfully translated in verse 13 as murder, rather than the thou shalt not kill of the King James Version, because the concepts, it involves intentionality, or at least negligence. In other words, a man may defend his family against an intruder, even with lethal force if necessary. That doesn't count as murder. But they ought not to go out gunning down people in the streets. 
a general negligence toward life would also be forbidden, such as drunk driving or things like this. Now, having made some specific insights into the Ten Commandments, I want to conclude with two general observations along with two points of application, one for parents and then one for all of us. So the first observation is the one that Dana discovered for the first time this week, and I discovered it for the first time this week too, which is that the commandments are given in the second person singular, meaning they're not simply addressed to Israel in general, but to each individual member. They're addressed to each individual member of the people of God. No one, neither priest nor king, nor president for that matter, no matter how much we want to excuse the moral behavior of our leaders, is exempt from the law of God. In fact, both the Old Testament and the New, even the children are treated as members of the people of God. Do you ever notice that in the book of Hebrews, there's instruction for the fathers, and then there's instruction for the wives, and then there's instruction for the children... And Paul says, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well for you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Right? And he, he's explaining to them, isn't it interesting that Paul expects that the children care about obeying God? He's not like, hey, look, one day you'll say the sinner's prayer and then you'll know God. And then we're going to teach you about something called the commandments. No, these kids are raised in the knowledge and love of God, just like they were in Israel. Amen. Now, one of the most spiritually impactful things that I ever did with my kids, can I tell you a secret? Was just to walk them through the Ten Commandments. And I want to encourage all the parents here to do the same. Pastor John and I did this together during our years as next-door neighbors during seminary. Uh, at the time, our kids were probably uh, four to six years old. And our format was simple. We did one commandment a week, Explain the basic meaning, which was a little tricky when it came to adultery. <laughs> I think we arrived at something like no being romantic with other people's spouses. <laughs> and then we looked at a Bible story that illustrated each commandment. And I was amazed to see how fast their moral reasoning matured even at such young ages, and how the Ten Commandments gave us this sort of like plumb line for, few, for future conversations about all kinds of important topics. I want to encourage you guys to do the same. You can do it. You can do it. The early church always viewed the, the Ten Commandments as one of the three pillars of catechesis, as something that every Christian should receive instruction on. And you guys can do this with your kids. Another significant observation that I learned from the Ten Commandments this week is that I realized that all the commandments except one, the one I just mentioned about honoring your father and your mother, are put in the negative, thou shalt not type form. Even the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, includes the prohibition, you shall not do any work. And um, rather than sort of processing this information and viewing God as some kind of cosmic buzzkill. What this really should tell us is something important ab about the fallen human nature that all of us carry with us. Something that previous generations seem to understand more clearly. Namely, 
that sometimes in order to say yes to God, we have to say no to our flesh. The problem of human sin is not simply that we lack willpower. According to the logic of the Ten Commandments, our very desires are fundamentally out of whack. We desire the wrong kinds of things. As Galatians 5.17 puts it, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. I mean, consider the kinds of human urges that these commandments are trying to curb. A married woman unconsciously thinks to herself, you know, I no longer find my husband as attractive as I used to, but the guy who sits next to me at work is super cute. You think it'd be all right if... No! It's not all right. You shall not commit adultery. Or perhaps you're in a conflict with a family member and rather than summarizing the situation accurately, you spread half-truths and mischaracterizations to make your case seem stronger. Is that okay? No! No! (laughs) Besides biblical prohibitions against gossip, the ninth commandment clearly says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The point is that any person trying to live a righteous life is going to experience unwanted desires. Do you have unwanted desires? Welcome to the club. Every fallen human being has unwanted desires. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that holy people are just, they're naive. They're like sheltered children rather than as courageous people like an Olympic athlete. But here's the thing. The saints are the only ones who really know how strong the current is because they're the only ones who've tried to swim against it. All the rest of us are just drifting along with the current. One of the great countercultural heroes when it comes to the topic of money is John Wesley, the famous founder of the Methodist movement. Wesley was an Anglican minister, an open-air preacher, advocate for the poor, and a staunch abolitionist in his day. Born in 1703, John Wesley went on to live 89 years, and as he aged, he got more and more money because of the popularity of his books and sermons. However, early on in life, Wesley made a radical decision to freeze his income. When he was a young man living in Oxford, he had an income of 30 pounds a year. He lived on 28 and then gave two pounds away. But when his income increased to 60 pounds a year, or 90, or 120, he still lived on the same 28 pounds a year that were sufficient for him early on. And he gave the rest away. In fact, at one point, the government became suspicious, and Wesley was contacted by the very British-sounding Accountant General for Household Plate. (laughs) Wesley was asked to give an account of what he owned, And in reply, he wrote, I have two silver spoons in London and two in Bristol. That's all the plate I have at present. And I shall not buy any more when so many around me want bread. Now, of course, such a radical life principle should never be understood as a general law binding on all believers. But the point is that Wesley had to say no to wealth in order to say yes to the life that God had called him to. 
And I wonder how that relates to each of us this morning. Which of your wayward desires is God calling you to say no to in order to say a fresh yes to him? Take a moment to prayerfully pause and consider that. Perhaps some of you, God is calling you to renounce wealth. You're standing on the precipice of an affluent life, and the Lord wants to use that for his purposes. Perhaps some of you have to say no to your wayward sexual desires in order to begin rehabilitating your relationship with God and with other people, whether you realize it or not. Perhaps some of you need to renounce telling lies, bearing false testimony that's designed to make you look better and other people look worse. Or is there some other thing, some rival to the place that only God should occupy in your life? To you this morning, perhaps you could hear the God of grace, the gospel law, gospel God say, you shall have no other gods before me. Take a moment to pause and ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart this morning. What is the no that you have to say to your flesh in order to say yes to God?